Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're doing Lord of the Rings. It's We're, we're entering the Tolkienverse for Weird House Cinema. Now, uh, I assume you are immediately thinking, okay, the, the Peter Jackson epic series, you know, the, the, the New Zealand journey. Of course, that's not what we're doing because, uh, you know, we're not going to go with that mainstream that we did recently do Deep Blue Sea. But uh, no, 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 we're not doing that. You know what we're doing. Of course, it is the 1978 Ralph Bakshi animated version of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Going a little more obscure, right? That makes sense. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, we're not doing that. Uh, Of course, what we're actually doing is the 1980 Return of the King. Oh, yeah. Where there's a whip, there's a way. Of course. No, actually, I'm kidding. We're not doing that. (laughs) The adaptation of Lord of the Rings we're doing today is the 1991 Soviet made-for-TV production Kronitelli, which translates directly as Keepers, which was made for the Leningrad TV station in 1991 as the Soviet Union was collapsing. And wow, this is one of the most amazing films I've ever seen. <laughs> it is so much fun. Um, uh, this, uh, it, what it recently emerged, right? It seems like it's yeah. certainly been making the rounds recently. Um, it, it was thought lost for like 30 mm-hmm. years uh, until uh, I think it was just earlier this year, maybe around April of, of 21, that the TV station that Leningrad TV turned into, I think it's called Channel 5 or 5 TV now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe they were responsible for locating the originals and publishing it to the internet. I think they just put it up on YouTube. Yeah, then- I, I, I think I read that one of their um, their employees wandered down into the basement and won the, the, the lost footage in a game of riddles with a subterranean <laughs> creature, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so, uh, so, and also some beautiful soul was kind enough to create some English subtitles, which is yes. what we're going to have to be working off of here. The original was of course, uh, uh, in Russian and, and the, the best we can do is whatever these user generated subtitles are, but I don't know. I got a good feeling from them. I trust them. I feel like they're mostly accurate. Yeah. I mean, we know the source material and th- this film, we'll discuss the changes, but it's mostly accurate to the source material. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's honorable to the source material um, with some caveats. Uh, and you get some weird characters thrown in. Like I had a lot of crucifixes thrown into my, uh, my, my subtitles, but it was still, they, they were, they were decent subtitles. So if, uh, for, I'll go ahead and put this out there that if you want to find these YouTube links that we're discussing here, I'll include them on the blog post for this episode at samutamusic.com. That's S-E-M-U-T-A-M-U-S-I-C.com. That's just a blog I have, but it's the only place I can put stuff up like this right now. So go there if you want to see it or, or just go look it up on YouTube. Doesn't matter to me as long as you see it and hear it and feel it. Now, if you are hoping to uh, to encounter Shelob or uh, see the battle for Minas Tirith or, or uh, see the hobbits go into Mordor or anything like that, uh, unfortunately, that is not going to happen in this part of the story. Because if you're familiar with the arc of Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, it was originally published as one gigantic novel, but broken into three volumes. You had Fellowship of the Ring and then The Two Towers and then Return of the King. This movie adaptation is just the first third. It's just the Fellowship of the Ring, right? And they—I uh, have to say—they really—they really let it breathe. You know, they spend a—they <laughs> spend two solid hours. They cut out some stuff that you might not expect them to cut out. 
Very um, strange choices about mm-hmm. pacing and yeah, how to how to allocate the plot into the two hours they had. Right, but then they also um, they, they they show a lot of love for sections of the book that are traditionally cut out of all adaptations, or at least all that I'm familiar with. Yes, so one of the most notable things about Coronatelli is that it includes Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Downs, which is so exciting to me. Yes, yes. I, I was excited for this as well because I have recently, we, my son and I have recently started listening to the audiobook of the, of the Fellowship of the Rings. And we just finished this section with the Barrow Whites and Tom Bombadil. And so he's had a lot of thoughts about it. And uh, like I was telling him about, about all this. And I was like, you know, most, uh, most film adaptations cut Tom Bombadil out. And he's like, no, Tom Bombadil's an important character. I mean, mm-hmm. not that he would know. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. made it that far into the book. At this point, he seems very important because he's essentially like a nature god who showed up and saved everybody twice. I think Tom Bombadil will come off as especially uh, essential and uncuttable to people who have listened to the audiobook narrated by Rob Inglis, who does the, yes. who does you know his own wonderful renditions of the songs that Tolkien only wrote the lyrics to. You know there there isn't music in the books, uh, so uh, but but Rob Inglis's interpretation of the melodies for the Tom Bombadil songs is actually quite haunting and interesting. Uh, you know, yeah, hey, hey doll, Mary doll, ring a ding a dillo. Yeah, yeah. Like the the lyrics are fun. Like one of the things about reading Tolkien is, of course, you get a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. And if you're reading them to yourself, you, I don't know, I find myself kind of reading quickly through the, especially the multi-page uh, song lyrics. Yeah. And then if I'm reading them aloud, say to my son, as we did with The Hobbit, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm fairly musically inclined, but not enough to where I can just randomly sing these lyrics to a tune. So the, the audio book is a, tr- is a real treasure when it comes to these songs, because he does a yeah, he does a great job bringing them to life, and and they even get you you can can kind of get earwormed by Tom Bombadil. Find yourself humming this song through the rest of your day. I listened to uh, part of these audiobooks on an airplane, and the next day I was wandering around London in a in a fog of jet lag, uh, just singing na 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 na. He's a merry fellow. <laughs> yes. What, what so is it? Good. Bright his jacket is and his boots are yellow. Yeah, a lot of lyrics about just how merry he is and what he is wearing, and then the, the river daughter re- about Goldberry, about, Goldberry. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Fatty and, Lumpkin, all about the ponies. Yeah, the love ponies. a song about a pony. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really good stuff. And yeah, and when you're reading Lord of the Rings, yeah, it is a weird encounter because he's just this merry, godlike and mysterious character. Like there's still scholarly articles that are that are trying to tear apart exactly what Tom is and what he mm-hmm. you know, what he descends from in, you know, the actual uh, annals of mythology. And then the Barrow Whites are just super creepy as well. They're these yeah. um when you get into the more into the lore, they're these tortured spirits that have fled the witch kingdom of Angmar and hid in the ancient bodies of human warriors that were buried during the first age of the sun. And so they're just like will crushing darkness. Yeah. And th- we have that wonderful creepy scene where the hobbits wake up in the barrow mounds and they're they're they've been laid out and covered in the gold of the dead. It's fabulous stuff. But if I were doing an adaptation where I was trying to render a barrow white, um, uh, I would not have thought to dress him as a creepy clown. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so the Barrel White, I think in this movie, I'm, I could be mistaken, but I believe is played by a woman, but is voiced by like a like a raspy, deep-voiced man. And, and the person playing the Barrel White is dressed in full like mime makeup or like, a, I don't know what you call that, classic clown makeup that goes like, you know, the, the old style. Yeah, it is 
It is not something I would have chosen for <laughs> for the Barrow Whites either. It's very creepy. It's very it's creepy, but in a way that um, is perhaps a little off brand. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know. There's just one detail in the film. There's other stuff that works a lot better. Um, and I guess I don't know. Maybe given the budget here, this was a good choice. Hard to say. I guess one of the problems. Uh, and, and I'd be interested to hear what you say about this. Like one thing that I've read about the exclusion of the Barrow White scene from other adaptations is that not only is there a pacing issue, not only is this a whole encounter that can be easily removed, but potentially if you put the Barrow Whites on screen, they might be confused with the Black Riders. Um, oh yeah, with the, the, with the nine, so, yeah. yeah, and uh, or in or even if you're they're not confused with them, they might take some of the heat away from them. Um, and so if you take them out, the Ringwraiths re- remain the primary supernatural antagonist in this phase of the book. I can see that. I mean, the other main criticism that I've encountered, and, and I know we've talked about this before, uh, I think what Peter Jackson said is the reason Tom Bombadil and the, the Barrow Downs and all that is not in his m- version of the movie at all is that it does not advance the plot. Like, you can cut it out and nothing is really changed. Yeah, the only... T- criticism i've seen of that is is people say well this is where the hobbits get their initial weapons uh from the the trove of the barrow whites you know tom bombadil picks stuff out for them uh and without that you just have strider randomly handing out hobbit-sized weapons later on in the film but i don't know i think that's that's a small 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 uh uh point to harp on uh, but this is interesting because it leads to one of the major differences in in storytelling structure between this adaptation of Fellowship and, say, Peter Jackson's. I mean, it, it's funny in many ways to compare them, though. Another thing that's funny is that they only came out about 10 years apart. Yeah. If you can fit that in your brain. 10 um, years and however many millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, that's also so uh, the the Peter Jackson movies were a multi-million dollar production. And from what I can tell, I was reading actually there's a very good article in Variety about the production of Cronatelli uh, that interviews some of the actors who were originally involved in it. They're still alive, still working. They talked to uh, Georgi Stiel, who played Bilbo Baggins in this production, who I think is, is like 89 now or something. Oh, and he's wow. still acting. Uh, And he's a great actor, by the way. I mean, one of the funny things about this is despite how uh, threadbare the the production is, a lot of the actors in it are legends of the Leningrad St. Petersburg theater scene. Yeah, and it shines through. Yeah, the actor playing Bilbo is great. The actor playing Gandalf is great. Um, Some of the others I have notes on, but those two in particular are wonderful. And yeah, don't dismiss this title uh, on the acting alone. Yeah, yeah. Some of the acting may come off a little weird, especially if you have certain expectations for some of these characters. But uh, but there are a lot of talented people involved in this. Well, I've got thoughts about that. I'm going to get to in a second. But uh, sorry, I started to introduce this article and then I didn't fully uh, put it out there. So it's an article in Variety by Rebecca Davis called Inside the Soviet Lord of the Rings. Cast details their epic TV movie uncovered after 30 years. It was published a few months ago, I think. And uh, this is a really great article, like I said, because it it manages to get uh, a number of people who were actually involved in this obscure production on the record to explain what was going on. And so one of the things emphasized by several actors here is that this movie had essentially no budget at all. It was made 
uh, I think over the course of an estimated nine hours total of shooting that took place in a few sessions in less than a week. Uh, so, you know, one of the actors was explaining that they would, you know, they'd sort of come together, they'd rehearse a scene very quickly, and then they just shoot it and they do no, no second takes. And then they just move on to the next thing. And like all of the stuff was sourced from just what was lying around the Leningrad TV station. So the costumes, the sets, the props, almost all of them were just repurposed, whatever they could borrow from other previous productions. I think maybe the most complex things we get in terms of filmmaking uh, are are the shots of horse, people riding horses out in the snow. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you get several shots of that that are supposed to be the the nine, the ring wraiths who are, who are hunting the ring. And then you also get some shots of the hobbits riding ponies out in the snow. And uh, one of the actors, I think uh, Sergei Shelgunov, who played Mary Brandybuck, uh, talks about how he'd never ridden a horse before shooting that scene. <laughs> he'd never he's never ridden a horse since, and it was the coldest he's ever been. <laughs> yeah, there is a one thing we should point out about this film is that there is uh, there is intense an intense feeling of winter in this. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, there's a point in the film where Gandalf tells, I think he's telling Frodo, right? He says, Frodo, winter is coming back. Yeah, they keep saying winter is coming over yeah. and over. This <laughs> also long predates uh, the 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 germ. And it's a it's an interesting cultural adaptation of of Lord of the Rings because you know so Lord of the Rings is very much about weather and landscape and uh, and and traveling across the terrain and experiencing nature as you're on a as you're on a hard journey. But winter and snow don't play that big of a. I mean, the snow is a big part of their attempt to get over the Caradhras when they're you know trying to go over the mountains, mm-hmm. uh, and then they fail doing that and have to go back down into the mines of Moria. But overall, I don't recall snow being a big part of the journey in the books. No. But hey, you know that the, you you, you got to adapt to the local terrain. So if you need to shoot locally, that's what you're doing. Uh, but then the other thing is this this film actually does while it's mostly just shooting actors doing a first take of a scene on a set at this Leningrad TV station or maybe at some other locations around town. I'm not sure. Um, they uh, they actually do have a couple of scenes that have special effects in them. For example, there is one scene where the four hobbits are dining at the house of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, and they recast Bombadil and Goldberry as giants. Uh, yeah. You know, that they're like not just a little bit bigger than the hobbits, but they're like enormous compared to them. Yeah, it's uh, which I don't think they're that big in the, the book. They're, like He's supposed to be kind of shortish, actually stout, but short. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're titans in this. But it's an impressive shot. Looks pretty good. <laughs> so some of the articles uh, have not agreed with you there, but I, I don't know. I, I bought it. I was there. I mean, taking I into account it. the zero budget, <laughs> yeah, um, and also just kind of the charm of the production. Like there is there is this made for television, like decayed quality. Uh, charm to it. And, you know, you don't want to see a perfect special effect in that. And then also, if, if I'm going to be more critical, um, there, there are far lousier special effects in this film. Like, that's yeah. not the one to really, that's not the hill to die on the giant Tom Bombadil scene. Yeah, I would say on the on the worse side of the visual effects present, uh, there's one thing where it seems like sometimes they were trying to evoke a sense of mystery or kind of, uh, I don't know, the the general visual obscurity of fantasy and the deep past by doing what looks like smearing the camera lens with the translucent gel of some sort. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So that's something we've seen. I've seen this in other productions as well, but they're, they're definitely doing it here. Oh, but sorry, I wanted to come back to something we brought up a minute ago, which is that, 
you know, I, I want to be uh, generous to this, but I think it is clear that a lot of the performances, the acting performances in this are way off base. They're just mm-hmm. bizarre renditions of these now well-known and now beloved characters, despite the fact that a lot of the actors in this production are actually great actors of, of, of the stage, at least, you know, people who have done a lot of work before and since in the in uh, the Leningrad St. Petersburg uh, uh, theater scene. And they're highly trained, well-respected actors. So, so what's going on here? I think actually a lot of the bizarre performances are a result of confusion about the characterizations themselves. Like something is getting lost in translation of how to understand what these characters' personalities are and how we should feel about them. Uh, so I would say one of the big examples is, uh, again, I don't want to single him out because I think he's I think he's actually a good actor, but the actor who plays Frodo uh, <laughs> makes some really strange... Like, Frodo in this movie, especially towards the beginning, is this insufferable Alfred E. Newman brat. Like, he looks like he should be wearing a sailor suit and have a lollipop in his mouth. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're shades of... I got I got a hint of Alan Cumming, a hint of Mr. Bean, yes. a hint of Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, Mr. Bean and Pee Wee Herman, absolutely, mm-hmm. but with like a red wig on and a wet mouth. Yeah, he's so it. I mean, I, Frodo and and Bilbo too. You know, there are certainly times where they're they're written and they come off as kind of you know wimpy and not a, up for the journey, and they have to overcome that. But mm-hmm. man, this Frodo, like he has he has this one line where at least it was translated as he's talking to Gandalf, and he says, "You've spoken for so long, it makes me hungry." <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, "Oh my God, you're you're not going to get out of the Shire alive, Frodo." You, yeah, I know the worst. But yeah, yeah, that would be, what, are, what are his epithets? Frodo worst heart. Uh, Frodo, <laughs> Fro- Frodo underwhelm. Fro- <laughs> Frodo underwhelm. Frodo cries a lot. Frodo lolly mouth. But even this actor's still around, right? Yeah, I think so. I, uh, yeah. In at least one of the articles I was reading about it mentioned something about him, though I don't think he was interviewed. But yeah, again, mm-hmm. I don't want to chalk that up to like the actor being a bad actor. I would say instead, um, we we now I think especially since the Peter Jackson movies, we have a more cemented idea of how the how each of these characters should be received. What's sort of the the uh, the canon appearance and and tone for their representation on screen. And at the time and place this was being made, I think something was just getting lost because even though there there has for a long time been great love for Tolkien's works in uh, Russia and even in the Soviet Union, there's obviously some difficulty in the adaptation. You know, there, there's a translation process going on, and it's not even always a totally like a uh, 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 free and organic translation process. Yeah. So on that note, let's let's just start with the obvious: the title, Chronoteli. Uh, yeah. What does this mean? Well, I believe it translates from Russian as the keepers and it is in like the keepers or the guardians of the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, incidentally, this is also the translated title for the Russian release of the 2009 Zack Snyder adaptation of Watchmen. Oh, Chronotelli. OK, I see. Yeah. yeah. So if you do start doing a search for Chronotelli or for the actual Cyrillic uh, of that, you'll suddenly get all these pictures of Watchmen. And you may find yourself confused. You're thinking, I'm looking for Lord of the Rings, and instead here is, um, you know, uh, Rorschach. Oh, wait a minute, though. So how do, So obviously the Peter Jackson movies, once those were made, were actually released in Russia. What do they call the fellowship there? Uh, I believe the title in Russian is uh, Bratstavo Kortsa, which means Brotherhood of the Ring. Oh, okay. That seems like a fairly faithful uh, rendition. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, as for Russian translations of the book itself, this is all very interesting and I think is also something to keep in mind when we're talking about, like, how are these characters framed, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, Fellowship of the Ring has an interesting history in Russia. It was originally published in the West, of course, in 1954. And so, um, you know, naturally, English-reading Russians could have conceivably read it uh, as early as that. But the first Russian translation didn't occur till 1966, uh, a short retelling that didn't see the light of publication until 1990. And the translation we see in the film here is uh, the, it's apparently based on a 1982 translation that was abridged to comply with Soviet censorship. Hmm. Okay, so what we're getting is a Leningrad TV teleplay adaptation of a censored and abridged translation of the original novel. Right, right. And for a while, this was there have been subsequent uh, translations in Russian of The Lord of the Rings, but for the longest, this was the only official version you could get in uh, the USSR. Now, according to Mark Hooker, the author of Tolkien Through Russian Eyes, cited in Alan Juhas' excellent New York Times article on this film, the major stalling points, uh, stalling, not stalling points, the stalling points, right. uh, uh, the, the hangups surrounding the original text uh, for the Soviet censors were perceived, quote, religious themes or the depiction of desperate Western allies uniting against a sinister power from the East. Yeah, you can see how uh, the, the Soviet censors might not have been keen on a book that's about allies coming together to fight an empire in the East. Yeah. So, I mean, so to say the least, Russia has a different history with Lord of the Rings compared to other parts of the world, certainly compared to, you know, England and America. Uh, the work itself, of course, has an appeal that defies borders and nationalities, though based in the mythologies and literatures that Tolkien himself was most familiar with. And these these include mostly non-Russian and Slavic influences. Uh, apparently, I was reading Tolkien had tried to learn Russian at one point, and it didn't take. Uh, here's what he had to say in one of his letters, quote, I love music, but have no aptitude for it. Slavonic languages are, for me, almost in the same category. I have had a go at many tongues in my time, but I am in no ordinary sense a linguist. And the time I once spent on trying to learn Serbian and Russian have left me with no practical results, only a strong impression of the structure and word aesthetic. Yeah, that seems correct. I mean, based on my experience with Tolkien, it seems like most of the uh, the language and mythology that he tends to draw from is uh, what you would say, I think, mainly like Northern European, sort of like Scandinavian, Germanic, and Celtic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's my understanding as well. Um, so we have that going on, and then we have this added layer of censorship, state suspicion of the work, and, and seemingly longer-lasting mixes of both a rich enthusiasm for Tolkien. I was reading uh, that uh, Moscow has or had a Tolkien museum of sorts. Uh, the, the photos were not... Um, I mean, they they looked fun. It looked fun, but Mm -hmm. it it also looked kind of small. But still, dedicated Tolkien Museum in Moscow. Yeah. Now, one thing that I'm sure of, though, I don't know if this particular question was ever asked to him. I think other similar questions were were put to him. Uh, I know that Tolkien uh, strenuously objected to any attempt to read Lord of the Rings or any of his works as allegory for real world or historical events. In fact, right. he, he made clear that he hated allegory and he thought that uh, 
it was stupid and insulting to the audience to like write a fantasy tale that was supposed to be an allegory for, I don't know, World War II, I think would be the more often thing Mm -hmm. people would be, oh, is Mordor supposed to be the Nazis or whatever? I think his attitude was more, no, I'm writing an original story, and you may see elements of it that make you think about things that have happened in the real world, but that's your prerogative. This is not meant to be taken as an, an allegory for any events past, present, or future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and and yet, once you certainly have, say, state suspicion concerning the work, uh, I guess that's kind of hard to to completely eradicate. And yeah. I, I feel like this is probably best encapsulated in uh, a book by Russian author uh, Kirill Eskov, came out in 1999, at least uh, in parts of the world, uh, in, in Russia, uh, titled The Last Ring Bearer, which spins the story of the Lord of the Rings by taking the view of Mordor as a state misunderstood by the victors who wrote the history. Right. So it's kind of a sequel to Lord of the Rings, but it says, uh, okay, you've read Lord of the Rings, but now consider this. Lord of the Rings is the version of the story you're getting from the elves, basically. Right. And the uh, idea that the, the, the elves have a, you know, have a grudge in all of this. And of yeah. course, they're going to depict Mordor as this awful, stinking, uh, you know, death realm, as opposed to what the last ring bear uh, frames it as, uh, as the, this, the cultural and the technological center of Middle Earth. Yeah, I think the way this novel reframes it is that Mordor is a place that kind of eschews magic and is trying to create a uh, a scientific and technological civilization. And it almost casts – again, I, I don't know how much the uh, the author would agree with this, but just having read summaries of the plot and some of the themes in it, um, it seems to me almost like the elves and Gandalf might be somewhat equivalent to the Axis powers in, in World War II and, and that they're uh, you know trying to promote this kind of uh, – uh, a fantasy romantic mysticism view of the world and trying to destroy the the society and culture and, and people of Mordor before they can uh, grow too powerful through uh, scientific and technological means. Yeah. As, as a thought experience, it's, it sounds fun. It, you know, it, it taking like essentially doing what the, um, what what some would accuse Tolkien of having done. Uh, but that being said, yeah, I don't think Tolkien would have approved of this. And I know the Tolkien estate would not approve of this. And that's one of the reasons you'll find no official translation of this uh, in the U.S. Now, as for other uh, film or TV adaptations of Tolkien's works in in, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, I was reading, I think there was an adaptation at some point of The Hobbit that has some major plot changes, but does involve ballet. And I've never seen this, but I would like to. Uh, But I was also reading an article in The Guardian by Andrew Roth, who I think is one of their Moscow correspondents, um, that was about this release of of Cronatelli, this adaptation of Fellowship from 1991. And uh, and Roth notes a couple of other interesting things about the the history of, of film adaptations of Lord of the Rings in Russia. So one of them is that uh, he, he mentions there was a 1991 animated version of The Hobbit that was going to be called something like The Treasure Under the Mountain that was partially animated, but it was never finished. Uh, but he links to this clip that somebody has put on the internet of allegedly what is like six minutes of, of what was going to become this movie. And I checked it out, and this is gorgeous. I wish they had made this whole adaptation. I mean, it looks phenomenally beautiful to me. Yeah, it is. It's it. It does have a lot of charm to it, um, and in a way, it makes one wonder what it will be like when, when, and if. Who knows how copyright laws could potentially change in the future? But uh, at what point 
Tolkien's work becomes the um, you know the property of uh, of the people at large, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it, 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 when you reach the point where just about anybody can can do some sort of retelling or a spin on Tolkien, you know, what what would it be like if you had? Uh, what would a Japanese Lord of the Rings be like? What mm. would a Mexican Lord of the Rings be like? Oh, I'd love uh, to see that, yeah. What would, uh, say, a, a Minds of Moria horror film be like? I mean, there's so many different directions you could go in in Middle Earth, um, where, uh, you know, r- right now, certainly, uh, if, if you're putting out any kind of, like, major production, it needs to be very much in line with what the estate uh, will approve of, I understand. There's another really funny thing noted in that article by Andrew Roth about... Um, this concerns something we were talking about earlier, tone getting lost in, in the mm-hmm. translation to the Russian version, which is that when the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies were uh, were released in Russia, there was one version of them, one dubbed version that was popular that was dubbed by somebody who was a translator named Dmitry Puchkov operating under a, uh, the pseudonym Goblin. And uh, allegedly, according to Roth, I, I've never heard this myself, his dubbed version of Lord of the Rings was noted for being filled with profanity that was not there <laughs> in the original text. And other funny things, like, for example, Frodo in it is called uh, uh, Fyodor, and mm-hmm. Legolas has a, a Baltic accent, and, like, Aragorn is, like, yelling, like, is, like, cussing at his troops. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know if I approve of cussing in yeah. uh, the Lord of the Rings, but uh, but that's interesting nonetheless. That really would change the tone for me. Yeah. Well, we don't have a trailer per se, but I, I think we, it's, it's high time we give everyone just a little taste of the, the the sonic wonders to be found in this film. Oh, you know what we should play is the is the opening music. We haven't oh, even talked about the music the yet, music, which is yeah. like the the. How did we go this far without the music? The music is like one of the greatest selling points of this. Right. The music in this film is is not what you might expect from a Lord of the Rings adaptation. It is in no way traditional. It is all over the board. There are so I counted something like five different genres of music used to mm-hmm. tell the story. And I have to say I love it. It's very liberating. You don't know what you're going to get. Okay, let's get that opening uh, song that is, I think the words in this song are a Russian translation of the inscription on the ring that's in the book. Yes. So, you know, uh, uh, seven to the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine to mortal men doomed to die, that kind of thing. Here you go. I love it. Russian folk rock. This movie is full of Russian folk rock. Also, though, I love the way the, like you said, it uh, it it just pulls in every possible genre. One of my favorite musical touches is that Gandalf's wizard uh, powers include the ability to cast spells of funk music. Yes, yeah, that is one of the the great sequences. Uh, that if, if you don't watch the whole thing, I'll also include the highlight reel that somebody put together. I'll include that on the samudamusic dot com yeah. uh, blog post for this. This episode, because in that you'll see a lot of the points we're talking about here, including the funky magic of of Gandalf the Grey. Now, we would normally do a section here where we uh, go in depth about a lot of the people involved in the production of this, especially the cast. Mm -hmm. Um, That's going to be harder to do in this case because a lot of these people 
didn't do a lot of films and are more kind of in the say Leningrad or St. Petersburg community, uh, theater community. Right. Um, and to the extent that they did do films, they're not really films that we would be, that we're familiar with. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, Russian movies. Yeah. So, so certainly I know we have some listeners out there who are, who are, uh, who are Russian or have, um, have a, a greater understanding of, uh, of, of Russian cinema. So if, if you have any notes on people that we're mentioning here or not mentioning at all in any detail, uh, certainly write in and let us know. But I, uh, we'll try we'll cover some of the high points and at least a couple of the people that are connected to Western films of note or Russian films that are of note uh, uh, internationally. So the director was somebody named Natalia Serebryakova, uh, who uh, I think she went by Natasha, actually. Uh, is Natasha like a normal a nickname for Natalia? I'm not sure. I, I, I would assume that. Um, but she uh, – one of the main things I was reading about her was that several of these articles mentioned that she was really insistent about getting the shots of the horses riding outside to really like heighten the – Heighten the sense of place in the movie, and because and it's good that you did because otherwise almost the entire thing would be shot indoors in these closed sets. Yes, yeah, I think this was a great choice on her part because uh, yeah, those were some great scenes comparatively. Well, the the greatest thing about them actually is that so when you saw the the nine, you know, there weren't nine of them in the production. Sometimes there'd be like two ring raids. You'd see them riding through the snow, and they've got these black hoods on, and it is playing synthesizer sequencers like i think i don't yes. know if they're moogs or like moog sequencers like you know that that kind of like thrumming uh, uh pulsating synthesizer music that actually i mean you wouldn't think normally yeah yeah you put electronic synth music in lord of the rings but hey it works it's good i like it i yeah uh, i absolutely loved these these moments where they dropped in this uh ring wraith synth um, because it, it has this, yeah, again, this kind of like nine, early 90s TV synth vibe to it. Uh, it gave, really gave me the warm feels. And it actually reminds me of some of the sounds that Boards of Canada were using in some of their early works. Um, some of their, uh, uh, their, their early tracks have this exact same sort of vibe. So it, uh, it really got me. In fact, let's not just talk about it. Let's have a quick sample of these vibes. So good, so good. You know, I love that watching a production like this actually it makes you question things that you had not even realized were assumptions you had made. Uh, like the assumption that the proper musical aesthetic for a fantasy film is like classic is orchestral classical music, basically, or you know, Liv Tyler singing somber a cappella dirges for for elf kind. But it makes you actually ask the question, wait a minute, why shouldn't Lord of the Rings have electronic music? Why, why shouldn't it have uh, Moog sequencers and funk bass and, and weird saxophone and stuff? And it, and it makes you, you say, okay, is there a reason or is this just the, the, the received aesthetic that I've never even bothered to think about? I respect the boldness of these musical choices. And I'm not even sure if the people who made this realized they were bold. Maybe they were just working without some kind of mental shackles that we've put on ourselves about fantasy here. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were, they were making this film without these, these other expectations. And I I mean, I'm one certainly to say, yes, any film is better off with an electronic score, even if it's not very good, it's better. (laughs) Um, 
But uh, but then again, like we recently talked about regarding uh, cannibal apocalypse, you know, there's, there's there are also certain standards within a uh, a given film culture. There are certain expectations about the music and what you can do with music. So um, you know, maybe maybe that's the answer here. Oh yeah, well, like we talked about in Cannibal Apocalypse, uh, if you watch Italian horror or thriller movies from the 70s and 80s, one thing you'll notice is that some for some reason the Italian directors seem to think that funk is scary or that Mm -hmm. disco music heightens tension and American audiences don't seem to agree with this. Like it feels incongruous. It doesn't fit, but it just kind of proves to you that the, uh, the moods evoked by certain genres or sounds of music are not universal. They, they can be highly culturally contingent for some reason to the Italians. It makes sense for the funk music to kick in while somebody's creeping up with the knife, but to American audiences, that sounds funny. Yeah. And perhaps for Russian audiences, or at least for the filmmakers involved here, um, an accordion is the appropriate instrument to play when Frodo is stabbed by a ring wraith. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. That was true, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe this brings us to uh, somebody else we should definitely mention as being involved with Chronotelli. And this is uh, Andrei Romanov. Uh, I think he may have gone by Dayusha. But Romanov had several roles with this film. Um, he was a he was a composer, so I think he did all or most of the music for the movie. I'm almost positive he did the version, the musical version that you heard earlier. That's the adaptation of the inscription on the ring, that that somber, haunting, almost kind of like old church chant uh, folk rock. But in this, he's also the narrator of the film. This is another choice that it makes that I really like. Uh, this Lord of the Rings has a fully embodied narrator, like, you know, masterpiece theater. He just sits there and he smokes a pipe and talks into the camera telling you the story. And sometimes he does just sit there. There are times where yeah. he doesn't seem to be in a particular hurry uh, to tell you uh, the story of the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see Gandalf chase down uh, uh, Gollum and he's like, hey, stop lying to me, pal. And Gollum's squirming. And then it might cut to him and he's just sitting there packing a pipe for a couple minutes and then he'll start (laughs) telling you what happens next. Oh, but the other thing uh, I didn't mention is that Romanov was a member of the famous Russian rock band Aquarium or Akvarium. Uh, which I think was based out of Leningrad, was first formed in the early 70s when I think it was it was tough being a rock band in, in the Soviet Union in the early 70s. But I think as Glasnost came on in the 80s, they had more more musical freedom. And uh, and now that this is one of the most famous Russian rock bands, they I know they, you know, they, they played Leningrad clubs all the time. And uh, they've got a ton of albums. I, I was listening to some Aquarium while I was making my coffee this morning, and it <laughs> definitely made me want to like Hugh Wood with Grandfather Mushroom. It's, I think they've done a bunch of different genres, a kind of uh, eclectic musical group, but a lot of it sounded basically to me like electric acoustic folk rock. It reminded me a lot, and I don't know if this is a, a fair uh, comparison, but it reminded me of the music of Al Stewart to a certain extent. Hmm. I don't think I really know Al Stewart. So, Oh, you know, he did... Uh um, well, I, I guess ironically, he did a song ca- called Roads to Moscow that's rather good, uh, but he also did uh, Year of the Cat, uh, Old Admirals. Um, uh, <sighs> yeah, but, but he did a lot of tracks that had, he had a, a track titled Nostradamus. So he had a, tra- a lot of number of tracks that were kind of lengthy and had historical uh, settings to them. Uh, good stuff. I, I like Al Stewart. I fire him up every now and then. Okay. 
Well, I'll say I not only love Romanov's music in this movie, but I, I love him as the narrator. I, I really enjoy the way he makes us sit and wait uh, for him <laughs> to tell us something else. Uh, while we're talking about the music, I also want to go ahead and drop one more audio sample. And that is some of the excellent Gollum music, because the Gollum music is also oh. seemingly in a slightly different genre. It's our kind of creepy uh, vocal reverb kind of a, a, a soundscape. I don't know how you would describe this, Joe. Yeah, I don't know. It's very echoey. Gollum growls in this mm-hmm. movie. He growls like a dog and then Gandalf growls back at him. And it should, we have to stress, Gollum kind of dances, kind of has extended dance sequences that, um, that, that should, you have to see them to believe them. They're pretty wonderful. Let's have just a sample of that. Isn't it dreamy? That's one, I mean, that's almost like, um, I'm reminded of stuff like Nurse with Wound or uh, uh-huh. Throbbing Gristle there. This movie has a number of uh, – so I watched it with Rachel, and she she said that the movie was hypnototing her. <laughs> it does. I, I, I fell asleep once during it um, in a very pleasant way. The Gollum sequence was one of the most hypnotody of, of the entire movie for me. Absolutely. All right, so I'm uh, I'm not going to really spend a lot of time on any of the other cast members, but I do want to mention two actors that are in it uh, okay. because they have some interesting connections. Uh, first of all, there's uh, Sergi Parshin, who plays Tom Bombadil. He was born in 1952. I believe he's still around. I'm not sure if he's acting or not. He's known for such films, uh, at least in Russia, as The Plane Flies to, to Russia from 94, The Fall of the Empire in 2005. But he's been in some titles with a bunch of Western names in them as well. And these include Bernard Rose's 1997 adaptation of Anna Karenina that stars uh, Sophie Marceau, Sean Bean, Alfred Molina, Fiona Shaw, and Danny Houston. So this actor is our bridge, the bridge we need to connect this film to Peter Jackson's 2001 adaptation. That's amazing. And oh, oh uh, this reminds me. So Sean Bean, of course, plays Boromir, the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the hero of Gondor in the uh, in the Peter Jackson adaptation. And Sean Bean is absolutely wonderful in that role. He, you know, he, he, uh, the best Boromir you could hope for. Uh, but there was something I think it was in that Variety article. If not, it was in one of the other ones I was reading uh, that had an interview with the actor Yevgeny Solyakov, who plays Boromir in the in Chronotelli. And so Yakov uh, apparently is a big fan of the Peter Jackson adaptations, and I think they caused him to wish that he had portrayed Boromir differently than he did. Uh, it, so there's a, I just want to read from that article in Variety by Rebecca Davis here, quoting uh, Solyakov. Uh, she she writes, watching the film for the first time last month, he felt he perhaps hadn't been quite ready to take on the complexities of the flawed hero. Quote, I don't think I played the role to the fullest. I wish I hadn't been so emotional when I was trying to explain why I wanted the ring. I should have remained very composed. And I think that's interesting. So seeing like actors who were in this, having watched later movie adaptations and saying like, oh, okay, I didn't really understand the character I was supposed to be playing. But like now that I saw the Peter Jackson adaptation, like saw Sean Bean, like Boromir makes more sense to me. And here's how I should have done it. You know, it should have like one thing that's great about Boromir is, you know, Boromir has a point. Boromir 
in a way, like his heart is in the right place. He's saying, give me the weapon of the enemy so that I may defend the world against it. Mm -hmm. But of course, in this movie, it's quite funny, actually, because they're having the Council of Elrond where everybody's, (laughs) you know, they're talking about what to do with the ring. And Boromir just starts going like, give me the ring. Give it. Give it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That doesn't doesn't work quite as well, does it? Yeah, it kind of makes you think like, well, why'd they bring him along if in the initial meeting he's like, it must be mine? <laughs> <laughs> now, I know what a lot of you are wondering. You, you're, you're thinking to yourself, all right, you guys have been able to find an actor in this film that connects it to the cinematic universe of the Peter Jackson uh, Lord of the Rings movies. But can you connect it to the cinematic universe of Eli Roth? And, uh, <laughs> and yes, we can. Okay. That's because uh, we have an actor by the name of Lillian Malkina, who plays, I believe, the matriarch of the Saxville Bagginses. Um, the Sackville Torbenses. Oh, it's the Sackville Torbensons. Well, uh, no, no, no. It's wait. the same thing, same. because in yes. this Torbensons adaptation, yes. it's Bilbo Torbens and Frodo Torbens. I don't mm-hmm. know what that change means, but they didn't go with Baggins. Hmm. Well, at any rate, she's the matriarch. She has several notable scenes here standing around with Bilbo. Uh, she was in Eli Roth's Hostel 2, and she was in his <laughs> Thanksgiving uh, short, the uh, fake trailer for Thanksgiving, uh, like a Thanksgiving 1970s slasher film, in which oh. she plays the grandmother. Oh, so I think she gets murdered and then like dressed up like a turkey? I think so, yes. Yeah. Now, another actor in this that uh, went on to uh, appear in some uh, some Western productions, Galadriel, is played by um, Elena Solovey, who appeared in The Lost City of Z and also in The Sopranos. Mm. Uh, and on top of this, she won an award for Best Supporting Actress in the film Factus at the 1981 uh, Cannes Film Festival. So that's pretty cool. In The Sopranos, I believe she plays Junior's nurse, uh, taking care of him when he's under house arrest. It's not a major role. I, I do think yeah, I think she plays the cousin of one of Tony's girlfriends. But she's perhaps the only actor from The Sopranos to appear in an adaptation of <laughs> of uh, the Lord of the Rings, right? As far as I know, what if you had to had to recast the Lord of the Rings using only actors who appeared in The Sopranos? Now there's a challenge. Okay, Robert Loggia as Saruman. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go with. I'm going to go with James Gandolfini, rest in peace, but assuming they're all still alive. Uh, James Gandolfini is Boromir. Perfect. Boromir. Uh, You're not tempted by the Gandolfini-Gandalf connection there? No. Gandolfini-Alf? He's not Gandalf-like, but he is like Boromir. He's got that kind of of reckless complexity. Hmm. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh. Seth just chimed in with the best possible uh, suggestion, which, of course, is Steve Buscemi as Gollum. (laughs) There you go. Oh, man. My name's Smeedle. <laughs> Hello, fellow ring bears. Yeah. That'd be great. So many, so many awesome directions you could go in. Yushimi's uh, oh. wonderful. He would, have, he would have been able to nail it for sure. So good. Okay, the guy who plays Furio, that's, that's our Legolas, I believe. <laughs> anyway, okay, we, we got to move on. Um, I figure at this point we should just mention a few things that we took notes on while we were watching this. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. we're not going to recap the story because, uh, you know, either you, you basically know the story of Fellowship of the Ring, or if you don't, you've probably stopped listening at this point already. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, so we'll just touch on some things that, that struck us. I, I will say the Hobbit scenes, the Hobbits partying at, uh, at Bilbo's birthday uh, party, pretty great. I feel like they helped to convey the sort of universal folkiness that is found in the Shire, you know, just about mm-hmm. any culture can relate to that on some level, though 
I don't know, the hobbits felt felt perhaps drunker than usual, like there was kind of a dwarven level of drunkenness to the hobbits, and I yeah. don't think we had dwarves at all in this adaptation, did we? Uh, was there we a dwarf did. and we I missed Gimli. it? We had Gimli. We had Gimli. Was Gimli there? I, I just thought Gimli was absent. No, Gimli was, was Gimli. Gimli, he was the guy in the red cape and hood well, after the okay. Fellowship formed. He has a, Gimli and Legolas are almost non-existent in this adaptation. The Fellowship, uh, so we, we mentioned the strange plot structure. It crams about half of the Fellowship of the Ring into the last 15 minutes. Yeah. So the Fellowship is not formed until there are like, yeah, like 15 minutes left to go out of this yeah. two-hour production. And instead, it, it decides to spend almost all of its time with things going on with the Hobbits at the beginning, and then mm-hmm. Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites, and uh, explaining the story with Gandalf, and then the scenes at the ends at like Bree and with Farmer Maggot. Yeah, like they they really started acting like they needed to land this thing in a hurry. Yeah. Which, as as we know from uh, Peter Jackson's treatment of the films, that's just not how you do Lord of the Rings. Right. You start acting like you're in a hurry, you're just not going to be able to tell it. Uh, so yeah, the pace the pacing is weird here. Well, the other thing I, I was going to mention this earlier, but I guess we got sidetracked. One of the things about this is clearly that they made a choice to emphasize scenes that could be shot with people like standing around or sitting around, not moving and discussing things Mm. and any sequences that would have involved um, major action or movement or outdoor sets, those things they try to skip over as lightly as they can. And so most of the stuff that gets cut is the more adventure stuff, you know, where, you know, you don't get really much of anything about, crossing the mountains, going through the mines, fighting the orcs. I mean, there's a little bit of fighting the orcs, but mostly it's just they reuse some footage they shot, or maybe not even footage. I think it's just a series of still images of people in these costumes with horns on their helmets, uh, and yeah. those are the orcs. And you see them going, ah, at the camera, and then you see uh, the actor playing Aragorn, swinging a sword for a minute, and then the battle's over. Now, one thing I applaud it for is that they um, they 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 made the choice to to gender flip Legolas's character. Oh, so yeah. Legolas is a female uh, elf for a, a what did the, what how do they refer to the the female elves in uh, the Hobbit prequel movies from Peter Jackson? Oh, Lady I, I women don't know. elves, elf women, something like that. At any rate, we have a female Legolas in this, uh-huh. and I feel like it was actually a pretty good choice because otherwise you have a very male. Uh, oriented uh, tale here. Yes, yeah, so a long observed about Lord of the Rings. I mean, this is this is a very duty story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I like the idea of uh, of making Legolas a woman. But uh, Legolas and Gimli have basically. I don't think Nothing. either of them has any lines in this adaptation. I mean, again, they don't show up until there's like something like twenty or. 20 or 15 minutes left and then they say nothing they just you see them standing there though yeah uh i want to point something out that uh it it took me a while to realize what i was comparing it to but gandalf in this looks so much like vincent price in the Witchfinder general he has like a (laughs) very similar hair and facial features i mean also his facial feet like he has a very vincent price-esque nose this actor very good observation i would not have caught that myself but you're so correct and we've already talked about frodo and what he looks like yeah (laughs) you know what i bet that actor who plays frodo is great i i I i'm convinced now that he was just like he had the wrong type of character in mind and that's the problem here i feel like casting hobbits is is probably a very difficult task i mean they i think peter jackson's productions were able to to pull it off 
but there's so many ways it could have gone wrong. You know, if you weren't mm-hmm. going with actors like like I mean, Ian Holm, of course, was terrific, uh, but. But also the, the the younger Bilbo, uh, whose name is eluding me at the moment, and also um, uh, the, the the kid playing Frodo in the the actual uh, Lord of the Rings films by uh, Peter Jackson, <laughs> they're all ter- terrific, and they're able to 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 pull off this character that I think could be mismanaged in so many ways. You mean Elijah Wood, the kid playing Frodo? Yeah, Elijah Wood. How old yeah, is he's he? great. Is, in that. is he a kid? I think he's older well, than me. <laughs> Well, at the time he was younger and had a very youthful uh, okay, appearance. Okay. And technically, and technically he was a hobbit though. He was what thirty three at the time. Oh yeah, that's like I don't know what for hobbits. That's like being sixteen, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I'm I maybe screwing up my hobbit math here, but at any rate, he's terrific. And of course, he's gone on to produce a lot of really cool stuff as well. Well, another thing is that it's not just Frodo. I mean, generally, other than Bilbo, the hobbits in this movie are grotesque. Uh, the the uh, the whole party uh Sa- again, this movie really de-emphasizes Samwise Gamgee he has maybe like three lines in it uh, mm-hmm. but they did make the choice to give him purple hair he has a purple ponytail and he has additional eyebrows so he's got his <laughs> eyebrows but then he's got big eyebrows drawn on on top of his real eyebrows mm-hmm. is he which one is the one with the giant sideburns I think well I think there are multiple ones with giant sideburns. This movie is a very mutton choppy movie. Like Bilbo has mutton chops that are clearly not human hair. They're like some kind of animal fur. They look like a mink stole but they're glued to the sides of his face. Um and uh so several of the the hobbits in the fellowship have mutton chops. Uh maybe they all do except Frodo or I don't know at hmm. least I I think uh uh, uh Peregrine Took does or th- as they call him in this movie Pin. Have we talked about Saruman the White yet? We have not. So one of the things we get in this movie is, of course, the sequence where, you know, it's famously in The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf disappears for a while. What's going on? And then he meets the uh, he meets the characters back when they get to Rivendell, the, the land of the elves. And you find out what happened to Gandalf. It's that he went to talk to Saruman the White, the great wise wizard, the, the chief of his order. And Saruman reveals a great betrayal that Saruman has concluded that it is impossible to stand against the armies of Mordor. So you have to join them or else die. And Gandalf is like, no, I'm not going to join them with you. So Saruman's like, well, I don't like that. Uh, you know, you, so it's it's pain time for you. And I guess he you're going on him. the roof. Yeah, you're going on the roof until you change your mind. <laughs> um, so Saruman the White, the, the greatest of the wizards, is supposed he's supposed to be like the guy you can really count on. But he is a betrayer and he joins the enemy. Uh, and it's, yeah. it's it's one of the great parts of the book. It's great in the uh, it's great in the the Peter Jackson movies, of course, with Christopher Lee playing Saruman. Oh, Christopher Lee was always the even before these films were in any way put together. I I, I was like Christopher Lee should play Saruman. Like this is the only person Perfect. who could play this role. Yeah, uh, and he's terrific. And and he and in those films, he looks like so many of these classic illustrations of the character. I'm thinking about the Hildebrandt brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they did a wonderful uh, version of, uh, of of Saruman uh, that I, that I've absolutely loved for ages. In this movie, Saruman looks like he would have been Hans Gruber's henchman in Die Hard. Yeah, he's like 35 and is clean shaven and has kind of a kind of a manic uh, energy to him, like a cocaine. Like a, like, cocaine. Yeah, like like he should be this character should be a drug dealer in a 90s action film. Yeah, uh, like he should be about to get his neck snapped by Jean Claude Van Damme. Or something. <laughs> Bizarre choice. Yeah, he's like sweaty, so he's kind of damp, <laughs> and he's 
he he's freaking out. He doesn't have that Saruman composure where he's like, you know, you will join or die. Instead, he's like, give me the ring. <laughs> he's kind of like <laughs> Boromir is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, there's another choice that I, I really took issue with, which we've talked many times about how much we love the weird music in this. But one musical choice that was very strange to me is that Tom Bombadil does not sing. Instead, oh, yeah. he, he has theme music that plays every time he appears, but he doesn't sing it. It sounds like some kind of – I was trying to think what band it sounded like. It's almost kind of like a, a, a 90s sound. It's like very reverby on the vocals. It's got that kind of like rushing sound effect on them. Uh, it's almost a little bit like 90s U2 vocals. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 weird because Tom Bombadil finally shows up in an adaptation. You expect him to sing because he sings a lot in the book. It's it's like a tremendous amount. Yeah, that's like that's what he does. So it is it's a interesting choice that he does not actually sing. I, it makes me wonder what the reasoning for that was. Was this the actor not a singer? Did the uh, did it get cut for time? I don't know. I mean, music is also like key to his power. Tom Bombadil's like, hey, if you get into any trouble. You need to sing this song, and I'll show up, and I'll, I'll, I'll sing my heart out and defeat whatever is bothering you, essentially. Does Frodo actually sing the song, though? I think he's just in the barrow down. He's, like, under the barrow, and he just goes, like, Tom Bombadil, Bombadil. And then he shows <laughs> up, and he's like, hello. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still great that Tom Bombadil shows up at all in yeah. this. But, but, yeah, it is weird that he doesn't sing. Man, there's so much that I'm not even remembering at this point. But one of the things that I think is a very strange choice, like I said, they really, they really shorten the adventure part of the story. Like once the fellowship gets together, that part's just on like fast forward to the max, uh, jumping mm-hmm. over everything. And they completely cut out the death of Gandalf. There's no, oh, yeah. there's no Balrog <laughs> there. I think yeah. they're just, they go into the mines of Moria for a minute. And we're to understand that they're fighting orcs because they show those orcs going with their horn helmets and Aragorn swinging his sword. And then they're like leaving the mines and they say like, hey, what happened to Gandalf? He must have gotten lost somewhere back there. And that's it. No Balrog, no bridge of Khazad-dûm. <laughs> or wait, no, there is a bridge because you see Aragorn like trying to balance on it. Yeah. Oh, and Aragorn is like 14, by the way. Oh, yeah. He has a big scar on his face, but he's... Yeah. Uh... But but yeah, there's no that Gandalf doesn't doesn't die like that is that's that's an interesting choice as well because this is one of the most emotional moments in the entire saga. Yeah, uh, really one of the most emotional moments in I would say like like Western fantasy like modern fantasy literature uh, in in its entirety. It, yeah, it's like it's it's a great storytelling choice because up until then everything has been about Gandalf is the person who knows what to do. Everybody else is confused uh and 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 they're they're scared and Gandalf is always the person who can figure out what to do next. And so you always look to him and then he suddenly he's dead, he's gone. And what are you supposed to do then? It, it's like it's it's so great. It really heightens the tension of the story. Uh, and I guess he does disappear from the story, but there's only like 10 minutes left when that happens, and they don't even say what happened to him. They're just like, oh, I don't know. I guess he got lost back there or something. Yeah, he had to take a leak or something, yeah. he's, but he's back. That's okay. We're good to go. And then immediately they're just in Lothlorien, and the, the elves are dancing around. There's just people in like uh, wearing garlands of flowers and wearing white robes, and they're they're doing ballet. 
This is when I almost fell asleep for the second time. This is a very hypnotic sequence as well. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, we do get the sequence with Galadriel being tempted by the ring and passing the Mm -hmm. test, and she does pass the test. She's she's a very good elf queen. And then, basically, it's pretty much over. I think we very quickly get Boromir saying again, like, hey, give me the ring. And Frodo's Mm -hmm. like, no. And then he walks... Oh, then we also have Saruman... uh uh, I mean, sorry, Sauron uh, himself, oh, or at least oh, the, the Eye of Sauron. Sauron. Yes, yeah. that part was Shows up very funny. I, I, and yeah. has exactly the same energy as all of these uh, these 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 ring junkies, uh-huh. because Sauron's just like, you're going to give me that ring. And that's <laughs> like basically what he does. Like this oozing eye with like purple ooze behind it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's the exact same tone as everyone else who wants the ring. But it ends extremely abruptly because Boromir is like, give me the ring. And Frodo's like, nah. And then uh, and then he starts to walk off. And then Samwise Gamgee shows up with his purple wig and says, like, hey, I got to go with you. And Frodo's like, nah. And then he <laughs> says, uh, he says, well, who's going to cook your food and light your fires for you? And Frodo's like, OK. And then they're just on horses and then it's over. Yeah. It's kind of the riding off into the distance, kind of like the end of a of an incredible Hulk TV episode from the, uh, from the old days. Yeah. And then I think we hear the theme song again. So I don't know in the end, obviously this is a, you know, beyond micro budget production. I mean, it's essentially a no budget production that was, uh, made, you know, made on the fly shot in less than nine hours, according to one of the actors, uh, and, and given what they had and also working on source material that was through several, uh, several different, filters of derangement i gotta say obviously like it's funny what we're looking at on the screen but i respect their work yeah yeah and it's again just knowing they were working with no budget uh i feel like they did a pretty good job and and it makes one wonder like what would have happened had had the same energy gone into this film as had gone into previous Soviet fantasy epics, because it, we should, of course, drive home that that there are some tremendous uh, uh, Soviet and, and Russian fantasy epics that that have, have come out in you know the years since, but certainly in the years before this, including uh, uh, the, uh, the the Jack Frost movie uh, Morozko, Morozoko, yeah, yeah from uh, from nineteen sixty five, but also films like. Like Sampo or the Day the Earth Froze, the the 1959 Soviet Finnish film uh, that is based uh, on the uh, the Kalevala. Uh, both of those films, even though you many of you might be used to sort of a, a decayed copy of the film uh, that is given the Mystery Science Theater 3000 treatment, if you find um, restored footage of these motion pictures, it's incredible. These are beautiful, high budget just beautifully rendered films. So I, I can't help but imagine, like, what would it have been like had the energy that went into uh, into Frosty or into the, the Sampo film, what if they had gone into this into the creation of the Fellowship of the Rings? Yeah, that would have been so magical. And apparently in, in Russia, the interest was there. Uh, the, like, uh, the, I was reading an article for the BBC that included an interview with somebody named Irina Nazarova, who they identified as a Russian artist who saw Cronatelli on TV when it originally aired in 91. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they say, like, well, wait a minute. How, like, is Tolkien a big thing in Russia anyway? Like, what, you know, would people have been into this? And I want to read her response. 
He's massive. After Jackson made his great trilogy, interests soared back. Russia is full of fans, cosplay, and everything. A friend of mine was out looking for mushrooms in the countryside near Moscow, and she ran into a band of elves with bows and arrows. (laughs) I know a blacksmith who makes a fairly decent living from hammering out swords and helmets, and he told me about a gangster who'd ordered gates for his mansion, quote, like in Mordor. Oh, my God. So some like Russian oligarch crime lord has, is also a Lord of the Rings fan and has mm. outfitted his dacha to be I don't know the the Baradur or something. Oh, mm. okay, <laughs> okay. Maybe we need to wrap it up there. But Rob, I have so enjoyed going on this uh, this 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 hero's journey with you. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, you know, a chance just to discuss Tolkien adaptations in general, uh, but also this this particular attempt. Uh, it, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. So again, I advise folks out there that who are interested, even if you don't have it in you to watch the entire two hours, um, you should at least check out that highlight reel. Though that highlight reel is not going to give you everything. No, uh, no, no, no. Especially oh, some of the, if, the musical qualities we've been talking about. If you don't have it in you to watch the whole two hours, you you just you're weak. You know you don't <laughs> you don't have you don't have intellectual willpower. You don't have the courage, the heart. Come on. You can, if if Sam and Frodo can journey across all of Middle Earth, you can watch this two-hour weirdo stage production. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Again, I'll put I'll put uh, embedded uh, versions of these videos up at uh, samudamusic.com, along with uh, uh, some of the music we were talking about, the aquarium music, for example. So you can check that out as well. All right. Well, yeah, we're going to go ahead and close it out then. But if you want to listen to other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science and culture podcast. Our core episodes come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You'll also find an artifact episode on Wednesdays, as well as a listener mail episode on Monday. So certainly write in if you have thoughts about uh, this particular film, if you ha- especially if you say watched it on uh, Russian television back in the day, or you have you have uh, I know we heard after we watched uh, Teens in the Universe or Children in the Universe, we heard from at least a couple of listeners who yeah. um, who had uh, Russian backgrounds, and we got to learn so much about about uh, the the viewing of that film and interpretations of that film. I would love to hear what you have to say about this one as well. Huge thanks as always to our excellent audience. Producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 